You are listening to Inside the Newsroom, a podcast about how your Niagara Daily newspapers bring you the news. I'm your host, Grant LaFleche. This is the third and final part of our podcast series examining how the journalists at the St. Catherine Standard, the Niagara Falls Review, and the Welland Tribune produce investigative features. In our first two episodes, we talked about how investigations get started, how reporters pursue information, how we use lawyers to guide the production of stories, and the thorny issues of protecting whistleblowers and using anonymous sources. So if you are new to Inside the Newsroom, you can listen to these previous episodes by finding them on our websites or on SoundCloud and get caught up. In this episode, we're going to look at the final stages that an investigative story goes through before publication, and the reaction to stories when a newspaper publishes information that some people would rather not become public. Once again, I'll be talking to my award-winning colleagues, Bill Sawchuk, whose 2015 investigative profile on Robert Magna of the Bayshore Groups earned him an Ontario Newspaper Award, and Karina Walter, who got a National Newspaper Award in 2012 for her investigative series on the All-Canadian Kitchen Scandal. And I once again will be referring to our recently published expose on the 2016 hiring of Niagara Region's Chief Administrative Officer. Also on that note, I will be writing a companion story today to be published with this podcast, looking at what we know and what we don't about the tainted CAO hiring process and the ongoing third-party investigation. Once a journalist has completed most of the information gathering in an investigation, the hard work still isn't over. Before a story ever goes to print, it gets ground through a fairly merciless internal vetting process, not just by the paper's legal team, which we have previously discussed, but by other journalists. In some newsrooms, this process is called sending an investigative piece to a red team, a group of journalists, reporters, and editors who are not directly involved in the news gathering process for the story. And their job is pretty straightforward. Come to the story with fresh eyes, ask questions, look for places where more reporting needs to be done, and above all, question the assumptions the story is making. In the case of the regional CAO story, the red team process was expansive, involving experienced journalists and editors at The Standard and its parent company, Torstar Metroland, reviewing the story several times. Knowing the story was important and its potential implications, we drilled down to examine every aspect of it before it went to print. Even before a draft of the story was sent to anyone for a review, I produced a dossier for our senior editorial staff outlining what we knew, how we knew it, and the history of the investigation. We had long discussions about sources, about their motives and access to information, and how to craft the story that explains how we know what we know, and that also protects our confidential sources. The writing process took three days, as the story underwent multiple rewrites, and I continued to reach out to sources to verify and re-verify information. The publication plan was to produce a story that could run, should the principal subjects of the piece, Regional Chair Alan Caslin, his policy director Rob Damboise, the CAO Carmen D'Angelo, along with some senior staff and members of the CAO hiring committee, chose not to comment. Once that piece was cleared for publication, shortly after lunch on April the 4th, we reached out to all of them by email and phone. I explained to them what our story was going to say, including some details about key pieces of evidence in the story, and we gave them more than 24 hours to comment. We made multiple attempts to reach each key person in the story. A few of them did comment, providing critical context for readers, but most did not. The story went through a final review and internal vetting, And then on 7 a.m. on April 6th, the story went live online and appeared in print. 
The Hamilton Spectator and the Waterloo Record also ran the story on April 8th. The reaction to the story was swift, and within a week, Regional Council had voted to hire the law firm of ADR Chambers to conduct a third-party investigation into the CAO hiring process. Some reaction from political corners has been to insist the standard reveal its sources, claiming that unless we do so, there is nothing for ADR to investigate. Others attack the paper for using leaked documents as evidence in a story that is ostensibly about a leaked document. This kind of blowback is not uncommon in an era where cries of fake news are commonplace after a news outlet publishes an investigative piece. So Bill Sawchuk, Karina Walter, and I discussed how critics attempt to discredit investigative journalism through personal attacks, innuendo, and even conspiracy theories. One of the things I'm interested in um, is in terms of, for me anyways, they take a personal toll because oftentimes as the reporter you become a lightning rod uh, and people who aren't happy with the story will often take it out on you personally. It seems to be one of two ways that it happens. Um, you're either incompetent or you're biased or sometimes a combination of both and it does get it does get very personal and it does take a toll. That's something that I, I'm you more than anyone have dealt with how do you how do you, do you how do you how, how do you approach that how well yeah i mean and, and i think you and i in particular over the last two because we've been so focused on the region over the last couple of years and you know whether it was expenses or the bridge audit report or the mpca or the ethics stuff we've covered there's always been this kind of pushback and it, i think you're right it's gotten more and more personal where they're not even talking about the story they're not talking about the facts that we found or the allegations that might be made they're talking about us personally um, and yeah, I mean, there's two things that that does. I mean, one, and I'm sure you, maybe you both had these moments when you get the sort of pushback, there's always that moment of doubt, like, oh my God, did I, did I get it wrong? I mean, is, is there something that I've missed? And then you have to kind of, I think, go back and, and, and have confidence in the fact that you have spent months on this and you have poured through these sources and you've poured through these documents and you've, you've done absolutely the best you can to get at the closest, as Bob Woodward likes to call it, you're trying to get to the closest possible version of, of, of the truth. Um, the, the personal side, that's a little tougher because, you know, they, they're trying to unsettle you and you, you kind of have to just, you know, grin and bear it in some cases and not take the bait and get into heated arguments with, with people online or, or, uh, uh, sort of, you know, get, let it get your stomach in a knot, right? Because they, it does get kind of nasty. And in this particular case, I mean, one of the things that's, that's, um, been interesting to watch is, is there's been no denials in terms of the, the core elements of that story in terms of the allegations being made away that hiring process was done. Um, and it, a lot of it turns on this secret memo. And so you have politicians who are going out in the public saying, first of all, you should reveal your sources, which is maybe something we can talk about quickly. But then it's the memo must have been faked or forgery or, or right. And then if even if it wasn't, then it was stolen. And even if even if this fake forged stolen document, you know, uh, did compromise the process, well, it doesn't matter anyway. And it's it seems to be this label, and um, you know, I'll throw this back to you, Bill. When, when that term of fake news, which got popularized during the the 2016 presidential election, I mean, that seems to be the go-to thing. It's it's fake, and by virtue of saying the news is fake, that the author and the paper is is fraudulent as well. Well, this is a new thing that you know is 
we haven't dealt with. Although, in, in some sense, it's always been that way. It's just with Trump, he's been so upfront and so in your face about it. There's no denying. But that, that's always kind of, they didn't use the word fake news. But again, the pushback was always that, you know, you either don't know what you're doing and you mess the story up drastically, or you're completely biased, you hate the person from the beginning. And they almost always, there, there's almost like a step-by-step -step process that goes on is first they try to kind of, they're nice to you and they try to talk you out of it. When that doesn't work, they go to your boss and say, listen, this guy's biased, this guy's incompetent, you gotta, you gotta shut him down, you, gotta, you can't let this go on. And then when that doesn't work, then, the, then the, you know, the attacks again become personal against you. And I mean, you've been called Grant LePuke, you've been, uh, <laughs> you know, you've had a, a wide variety of, of nicknames. That's true. And, uh, and there's been, uh, you know, Friday night, you know, if you, if you just, you know, Grant Rant's Twitter, Twitter, you know, search, um, you know, boom, 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 you're, you're the topic of conversation. Well, that's, that's interesting, though, isn't it? Because you know, when we all started in this career, if, if somebody took issue with our stories, or in these cases, people trying to distract from the story and, and attack you personally, it would come through snail mail, mm. uh, email, I guess, if we go far enough back. Uh, and and uh, letters to the editor. Now people can mount a disinformation campaign against us or against a particular story instantly mm -hmm. through social media. And it can spread like wildfire yes. very quickly. Yeah, it's it's a it's a. So I feel like sometimes part of our job, um, and I found this over the last year, is that when that pushback comes, it's almost like we we so we do our we do our daily work, we do our investigative work on these bigger pieces, and now there's this third piece which is fact-checking the people trying to attack the credibility of the paper. Because we, have, we had, certainly have a responsibility to correct the record as quickly as possible if we have made an error, and goodness knows we're not perfect, and you know, uh, all newspaper reporters make a mistake sooner or later. But this is more about you know, disinformation being put out into the, into the universe, and if, we, if we're not there to fact-check it almost in real time, it doesn't get fact-checked at all, and that stuff, as you say, Karina, can take on a life of its own. And I guess that's what, the fact that we do fact-check and the fact that we go through all the processes that we just talked about with the lawyering and the triple-checking anonymous sources and, you know, calling people multiple times to try and get their comment, I, I think that's what distinguishes us from a lot of the noise, <laughs> quite yeah. frankly, um, that you see on social media where people are claiming they know something. Um, you know, they know a fact about something, and maybe that's not exactly what has happened, right? And so they can always turn to us because they know we've checked. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Twitter sometimes, and Facebook to a lesser degree, but it, it feels like almost this fact-free zone where people can throw any allegation they want out into the wind, and that gets, that gets picked up and repeated and retweeted and shared. Meanwhile, if we did that in the course of our own work, I mean, our heads would be on, on picks oh. and paraded around as a warning what not to do. Um, in terms of, and I, I mentioned this earlier, Bill, and I, I wanted to get your thought on it because I, I did one of those kind of live fact checks. Um, it was it was after the incident at Regional Council where they had unlawfully seized your computer and notes. The very next council meeting, uh, Councillor Barrick from Port Colborne gave this long soliloquy about the dangers of of, of local reporters having sources in government, and and th this uh, narrative has evolved from there to be, well, you guys are being hypocritical when you're writing stories that use in part leaked information, and in my case now, writing a story about government leaks, and that somehow getting that information is fundamentally 
bad, but that is actually how we get, you know, whether it's that employee list that Karina had or some of the documentation you and I have got over the last year or the, the Megna stuff. If we didn't have those sources and whistleblowers and leaks, we wouldn't be able to do these stories. And the public would therefore remain ignorant of, of some of these things that they really do need to know. I mean, it's the false system of false equivalency that, that comparing the, the, the leaks that are people who are genuinely concerned about what they see happening around them, especially in government, and want people to know they want to, the, the old, the old uh, saying that sunlight is the best disinfectant. There you know, things <laughs> yes. going on that, that aren't right. And they're, they're, again, taking risks. And I'm sure they, you know, swallow hard and, you know, you know before they, they pick up the phone or send that letter. Uh, because it is, it's, it's a bit of a scary thing to do because these are people, you're dealing with people who are used to getting in their own way and will oftentimes, you know, come back uh, on you uh, for that thing. So that's what, why the, the, the leaks are important. And that, that leaking, that in terms of it, the leaking is just getting information that probably should be in the public anyways, yeah. uh, you know, out there. And so for some reason, there's or not, I guess you say sort of, there's good reasons people don't want it out there. And nonetheless, this has always been a kind of fundamental tension in the newspaper business with 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 public figures and with the government and what they don't want you to know and what some people do. And that's why this kind of dynamic of, mm. of a leak and things. But to compare what, us using leaks. Uh, to um, someone who has leaked something in terms to try to screw the process of hiring the yeah. CAO is, I, if, if I have to explain it, I, then I, there's, I, I don't think there's much hope. Well, and there's, <laughs> there's, also, there's also a thing that's come up, and, and it, it's sort of been this increasing narrative politically, locally, with some of the stuff that we're doing, where we're accused of serving a political agenda as, as part of some sort of partisan game. Um, as though we are the, we're the political agents of, of a certain faction of council or a certain um, political party, when really to us, it really doesn't matter if, you know, the guy who, who leaked uh, that memo on the CAO process, for instance, was a liberal or conservative or a social democrat or some such thing. It's, it's the fact of what happened that is paramount to us, not who, which party allegiance some of these people might happen to fly. That's irrelevant to us, usually. I think you've been accused of being a member of all those parties. Haven't I you? have. Plus the yeah. communist party. Plus the communist. I've been called a communist Nazi in the same breath. And I, at, yeah. at that point, you know, like you just said, if you have to explain, like, those are, at least if you're going to insult me, pick one. <laughs> you don't, you, you, can't, you can't call me dry and wet simultaneously. It's one or the other, you know, make up your mind. You've been listening to Inside the Newsroom, a podcast by your Niagara Daily newspapers, the St. Catherine Standard, the Niagara Falls Review, and the Welland Tribune. If you have any ideas or questions about this show, don't be shy about reaching out and sharing your thoughts. You can email your feedback to grant.laflesh at niagaradailies.com. This was the third and final installment of our look at investigative journalism, and you can listen to the first two episodes on our websites, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I'm Grant LaFleche, and in the meantime and in between time, that's it for this edition of Inside the Newsroom.